because we come from journalism documentary, we just didn't want to judge our characters. We felt like everybody in this room, we make good choices and bad choices. But what happens if you take these pairings and you go on the journey and then have this complex ethical and moral decision when you're in the interrogation room and you're wondering like, oh, do I really want these women to go to prison or do we really want these guys to catch them? And we loved playing around with that dynamic and letting the audience be able to choose and decide like what they felt like should happen. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Aaron Gaudet and Gita Palapoli's new comedy, Queenpins. Inspired by a true story, the film is about a bored and frustrated suburban homemaker who hatches an illegal coupon club scheme with her best pal to scam millions from mega corporations and deliver deals to fellow coupon clippers. They find themselves pursued by a hapless loss prevention officer from a local supermarket chain who teams up with a determined U.S. postal inspector to bring them down. In addition to Queen Pins, Mr. Gaudet and Ms. Palapoli previously directed the feature film Beneath the Harvest Sky, and, along with director Dan Farrigan, the India A New Life episode of the television documentary series Frontline Slash World. Mr. Gaudet's directorial credits also include the feature-length documentary The Way We Get By, and the documentary shorts The Gambling Man and The Elephant Bath. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Gaudet and Ms. Palapoli spoke with fellow director Cindy Chupak about filming Queen Pins. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. This is such a fun movie. Thank you. Um, that was the plan. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you guys about, um, I, know, I know Gita and Aaron. I knew they were, I met Gita a few years ago through a Northwestern alumni group. And they were working on um, something called Crook County, which I think is going to be their next film. And they were having a lot of trouble getting that going. And it's this amazing project. I've read it's a great screenplay, but trouble getting financing. And then Gita one day said, "Um, I think we're going to do this other thing. We have this other idea that's kind of fun, and we're going to try to do it. And to me, it felt like a year later, you had a movie. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me. um, I was curious for you guys. I read that you stumbled across this idea of this coupon scam because you went down a rabbit hole on the internet. Can you explain what that means? What, how did you look? What were you looking for? Sure. So as probably everyone in this room knows that when you see a good article in a magazine or something, it gets optioned by Brad Pitt's company or George Clooney's company. Like we're always the last in line. And Aaron and I come from journalism and documentary. So we love taking deep dives on the internet. And I don't even know where I was when we started. I think I started on the FBI blog, actually, on an FBI website, but then eventually ended up on a coupon blog. And on this coupon blog, it just had three sentences, a little blurb about a $40 million coupon scam and the name of the detective sergeant investigating the case. And we, Aaron, I showed it to Aaron, and we immediately were like, we should just talk to this detective and see what's the deal. And after talking to him, we got in our car and drove to Phoenix. And was there anything you had to option, or did you have to talk to the real people, or was there any challenge to doing something based on a true story, like what, how you had to diverge? Or, I mean, when he told us the story and sort of he would show us photos from the investigation and actual coupons the women had used and you know, kind of laid out the whole framework of what happened and what kind of money they made and what they did with their money and all of this stuff, 
it, I mean, it just seemed absurd because it was counterfeit coupons and it was millions of dollars and postal inspector SWAT teams and all of this stuff. So it felt like a comedy, but when he would talk about the real women, you know, like they were criminals and probably <laughs> not likable. So mm-hmm. to us, it always felt like more of like a Robin Hood story. So I think pretty quickly we were like, oh, we should just take the framework of the scam and then create our own characters and tell the story we want to tell within that. And was that detective kind of hard scrabble? Was he the impetus for like Vince Vaughn or the other character or? I think he was half and half if we were to be honest. I mean, he, you know, he would talk to us about how, you know, the women were criminals and the corporations were victims and, but you know, he's a police officer. So that's where he's coming (laughs) from. But for us, we really felt like we want to root for the women. We want to, we were feeling pretty undervalued in Hollywood at that point. Our, that other script you were talking about kept getting financing and falling apart, getting financing, falling apart. We would go into meetings and financiers would say, we love the script and we love the cast you've put together, but you guys have no value. And we would hear that. And, you know, after a while, we didn't really realize it when we wrote the script, but eventually we're like, oh, yeah, we're kind of Connie and Jojo. Like (laughs) we feel undervalued and discounted and we want to try to find a loophole to success. Yeah. Most people know us for our dramas and making people cry. And we felt like maybe it's time that we make people laugh. Yeah. Can you talk um, just briefly about your, your first project that you did, which I just watched the, it's the way we get by a documentary that was nominated for an Emmy and it's great if you need a like uplifting something else to view by these two. Um, can you talk about how that that got you into filmmaking? Yeah, I mean, we were working in television news mm-hmm. in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and you and, were a television reporter. Yeah, I was a television reporter, and um, I would Aaron's best friend ended up becoming my photographer. And we would drive around in Grand Rapids, and I would complain about working in local television news. And he said, you, re- you really should meet my friend, Aaron. He hates local television news as much as you do. <laughs> and so we met. And the first thing Aaron asked me was, what do you want to do with your life? And I was so upset and offended. And then I really thought about it. And I said, yeah, what do I really want to do? And I love visual storytelling. And so he said, let's make a movie. But we needed a movie idea. And we thought the easiest bridge from journalism would be a documentary. And at that time, Aaron and I started dating, and he took me home to meet his mom. Well, we were searching yeah. for an idea for a documentary. I convinced yeah. her to go on a date. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, took her home to meet my mom. What I didn't know is my mom had been, I, live in, I grew up in Maine. She lived in Maine. She had been going to this tiny airport and greeting troops that were heading to war and returning home. A million and a half troops have gone through this little airport because of the location. And we went there and she got a call at two in the morning and we followed her down to the airport to find, you know, it's like 50 mostly senior citizens, a lot of um, veterans. Mm -hmm. And then this flight comes in and it's just really emotional. It's these, you know, guys and girls just back from war and the middle of the night and there's these people there to greet them and give them hugs and cell phones and stuff. And we just kind of sat back and watched it and was like, wow, there's incredible emotion happening here and nobody knows about this. And we're just like, this could be 
our movie that we've been looking for. And that became our film school, and that became the movie that taught us about who we wanted to be as a husband and wife and who we wanted to be as film partners and who we wanted to be as human beings on this earth. It's a really sweet. It's got so much. And Aaron's mom is one of the three older mm-hmm. main characters that do this greeting of the troops. And especially right now on 9-11 and with yeah. Afghanistan, it's very timely to watch. And Yeah, very patriotic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that had a lot of what I could see were the sort of seeds of emotion and storytelling that then you had in a dramatic feature that you did. Did you? How did you finance that one? And I mean, we, it barely cost anything. It was yeah. like micro budget. Um, yeah. It was a tiny indie film. We made The Way We Get By, and the people that supported that film, when we told them we wanted to move into the narrative space and write a script, they were like, well, we believe in you guys, and we just whatever money we have, we want to just put towards you guys making this film. And it was so tiny of a budget and we didn't feel the pressure from them to have to like make a huge profit, but it ended up being really successful for us. That was, what's the name of that film again? Beneath the Harvest Sky. Right. And it's about these two yeah. teens mm-hmm. boys in Northern Maine who mm-hmm. are trying to escape their dead end town. And one of them's working his final potato harvest to save money and the other one gets pulled into smuggling prescription drugs across the Canadian border with his dad. So, you know, those two films, if you had watched them, we would be the last people you'd expect to make a comedy. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> and your agents, how did they react when you said this is what you wanted to do next? Well, we didn't. We just gave them the script after we wrote it. We didn't tell them we were writing it. And then they and read it. And, and the first thing they said to us is, oh, we didn't know you guys were funny. We were like, that's more on them than us. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And who was first in on this? What actor? Kristen Bell. um, And she just seemed perfect from the start. And then, you know, she had worked with Kirby, Howell Baptiste, three other times and different projects. And when she told us about her and we, you know, we were familiar. We'd watch Barry and Killing Eve. She's on a lot of great TV shows. When we met her, um, we just couldn't imagine anybody else as JoJo after that. And we just knew they would have such great chemistry together. And with Paul Walter Hauser, we had always wanted to work with him. And he read the script and really loved it. And it was kind of perfect timing. And then we were like, well, who would pair well with Paul? And he had mentioned that he had always wanted to work with Vince Vaughn. And Kirk County, the project that kept falling apart, had Vince Vaughn attached to it before. So he had a relationship with Vince, and we had a relationship with Vince. And so we all three went together to Vince and just asked, would you do this? And he was super gracious. But it was exciting because they had, you know, sort of a friendship going too. So we're like, okay, both duos are friends outside of the movie, and hopefully that is going to make the chemistry really good between each pair. Yeah, because I was going to – so I know you did this – right. You this is a pandemic film. Yes. You were like one of the first probably to go into production in this moment, right? We were the only independently financed movie shooting in L.A. last year because we were supposed to open production offices on March 16th, 2020, and March 13th, that Friday, everything shut down. We were so close to production, they had already bought the insurance policy on the movie – so it didn't exempt COVID. And so once COVID like the hit... Only, that was probably the first insurance policy that didn't exempt COVID, right. right? Once COVID hit, no other independent movies could get insured because it would always exempt COVID. So they were like, your insurance policy is almost like a golden ticket. Huh. 
So even though our financing had fall, fallen apart, they were confident that like, well, somebody's going to need content. Maybe we can get this off the ground. The problem is our budget wasn't going to get any bigger, but now we had like a third of it was going to COVID costs. So we had like under $7 million to make the movie with. Yeah, our first AD, Kim Winther, is here today, and I think, um, you know, he definitely helped keep, keep the set going and getting us to the finish line in a way that we never could have pulled it off without him. It looks so much more expensive than that. It's like a big budget movie. <laughs> well, yeah, it you. was, um, yeah, it was challenging. Uh, just, you know, it's a whole new department on a film set, you know, so it was, it was a lot to kind of figure all of that out and make sure everybody was safe, but also felt safe and, you know, getting everybody's buy-in. Everybody was excited to work, but also everybody has families and it was, you know, pre-vaccine and the height yeah. of the pandemic in LA. So there was, it was a lot of sacrifices. Yeah. Right. Were you all just in a bubble together basically for? Well, I mean, we shot 22 of the 30 days on this campus in Pomona. That's like an abandoned medical facility but you know we went home every night but that was the big challenge is getting everybody's buy-in because we could keep them safe on set but when they went home we're asking them to kind of quarantine and not do anything and you know we're going through the election and thanksgiving and right and um i read somewhere that you did sort of because it seems like people are having fun on the set i mean it comes through in the film how did you make it sort of a fun and collaborative set and what I read somewhere you did like exercises with the actors or what did you do? Yeah, we, our approach to directing and leadership is very different than I think in a lot of people, but ours is very much about collaboration. And we have this concept that we learned in our leadership programs that Aaron and I were part of, which was basically around servant leadership, which is really about making sure everybody understands the goal at the end of the day, which to us was be in service to the story. So, for example, for our actors, we would do exercises like identifying your core values. And so, like, Kristen and Kirby would do this exercise with us for who they are. And then we'd actually work with them to do their core values for their characters. And so when we were on set, it was a lot easier to understand character and story because, you know, Kristen would say, well, you know, one of my character's core values is achievement. achievement. Yeah. <laughs> We did it with all of our department heads, too. We know Kim's core values now. <laughs> he, he did the exercise. Yeah. So you did the exercise of what's your personal core value, and then what do you think your character's is? Yeah. And, and, then, sort of- and then what was great about that is it was really just, like, sped up the efficiency of, like, understanding how if we needed something from story or performance, we could quickly identify it based on each character's core values. And what, was, um, what were Vince's and Paul's? Oh, we can't really share. The thing about sharing core values is they're personal to each individual. Ah, okay. But um, I w- we did the same exercises with them too. And, you know, I think why I think Paul and Vince's characters work so well is because they kept going back to those values. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Um, and then how is it directing as a married couple? What's the best part and the worst part? Hmm. That's a tough question. <laughs> I mean, no, we, we now we're going to break up their marriage. <laughs> we, we write and direct together, so our entire lives is a collaboration. You know, every day it's like a two-person writer's room. And I think anytime we bring more people in, there we're kind of inviting them into our marriage. So then even when we're directing, it's like you're inviting 150 people 
into your marriage in some ways. And, you know, we're not, um, we're not like arguing on set or something. We've heard, uh, some like sibling co-directors. There's like a lot of disagreements. I think we hopefully like prep a lot and come prepared and on set it's more execution hopefully and not, um, you know, figuring out what we're trying to do. I think from the script stage, you know, Aaron and I, you know, female, male, very different cultural backgrounds. So when we sit and write, it really comes down to making sure we're aligning our vision on that page. And all of those choices and details are made in that writing process. So we kind of like, you know, roll up our sleeves and kind of have our little bouts in that process. But once we agree, like no word in our script ever goes on onto our page until we both agree on it. So you have to have extensive conversations at that point. But then once we were getting into production, all of those conversations have had a hundred times over. So then we know exactly what we want to achieve. We just have to figure out how to achieve it. Like the script is our merged visions. So mm-hmm. that is really important. Mm-hmm. But then when we get there, we're not precious with the words. The first thing we tell our actors is, you know, there's a way to say it that feels more honest, more natural. Mm-hmm. We're open to that. And we don't, when we direct, we have two separate monitors because we don't want to be influenced by each other. Is we want to make sure that if we feel like, you know, Aaron sees something or I feel or see something, that we're not influenced by each other. But we know when we have it, we both have it. And it really gives comfort to our actors to know there's like, you know, two sets of eyes looking at a performance or story with them. Right. And do you divide and conquer any part of the process? Like, is there one part that one of you does or you do everything together? Everything Everything together, together. which is how the DGA likes it, too. (laughs) Uh, No, like we, I mean, we're better together. We always feel like um, it's important to just tackle each thing together and not try to do that because I think, you know, we wouldn't want to move past any point without both of us agreeing that it's right. Right. Yeah. There's like an accountability, but also like, you know, you know, and set, you're making a million decisions and trying to make sure that nothing falls through the cracks. And I think if two people are there looking through it all and we're agreeing like, yeah, this is what we talked about when we were writing it in the script, then we know we're on track still. It's interesting to be watching at different monitors. That makes a lot of sense to me because you do then, maybe one of you. Do you find, so I, this, a couple of years ago, directed my first film after just writing and something I wrote. And uh, did you find when you're watching you, it's a totally different muscle, like you said, you're not precious about the words and they're your words, but you're like, are you able to be in the moment watching or do you ever find yourself not in the moment and have to kind of recheck? And I found that to be a challenging part to you guys. To us, I, I mean, to me personally, I feel like I love what the actors bring to what we write on the page, and it's exciting to see their interpretation of it. Whether it's the right interpretation or not, it's exciting to know, like, oh, that's the perspective that they're coming from. And then it's like, okay, like, Clay, now let's mold it into what we really need for story first. And then if we feel like we're getting that, then we look at all the different options. Because even in takes, you know, in the edit, it's always like, oh, well, we like this performance, but this is really something unique that might actually push the story forward based off of a look or something. Right. I think for me, you know, we came from documentary. Whenever I'm watching them, I'm always just wanting to feel like suddenly it feels real and honest and it feels like almost real life. And when it 
clicks, you kind of feel it. Mm-hmm. And then I come from editing. So I'm always just kind of thinking like, okay, do we have, like, if we do this, can we now go to this and trying to just think like how it's going to cut together, I guess. Was there anything in editing that you ended up changing a lot or adding or like, was the voiceover always part of it? Was the, were any sequences reordered a lot? Did you find anything you were missing or wish you had? I mean, there was the voiceover at the beginning and end was always a part of it, but we rewrote it probably 50 times. In <laughs> the beauty of voiceover. And, you can. You know, we would like text Kristen and be like, we need you to record something again. And yeah. just trying different things. And as we, you know, it was really hard during COVID. Normally you would do test screenings and stuff, especially with a comedy and we couldn't do any of that. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was showing little groups of people and having them fill out these long surveys and, you know, just tweaking stuff. And it's like, oh, like it's, it's always like, oh, that's what they think. Or they're confused by that. Like, how can we Mm -hmm. change that and things like that. But we were showing people a cut, you know, pretty quickly. Two weeks once we got into our director's cut, we started showing people a cut because we knew that we, we already knew that it was going to be a real problem with COVID. We were already editing remotely. Uh So we needed to get feedback in real time because we knew we only had a certain amount of weeks to turn in that director's cut. Well, and we couldn't show 200 people at once. So it'd be like, okay, we're showing 20 people this weekend. And it's, there are like three people here and two people there. And so we're just like, we need to be showing people all the time if we're going to actually get a large group of people to see it. Right. Smart. Yeah. Um, they, does anybody in the audience have a question you wanted to bring up or I have a few more questions, but since we're a small group, if anybody yeah, wants to ask free. anything. I can tell you one thing we learned the hard way is film critics really do not like scenes. Even when it's him and he's adorable. They really don't. (laughs) But now we're going to write one into every movie we do from here on out because we enjoy them. And also, like, when we did our surveys, that was the most popular scene. That was, like, that was the um, interesting thing is you – it was like an 80-20 split on how people felt about it, and 80% really loved that scene. That was like their favorite scene in the movie. That's uh-huh. when we, that, So that's yeah. when we realized that. Yeah. The critics, difference between critics and yeah. just audience. audiences. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. Well, I was going to ask you guys, um, what, was it, what was maybe your the most fun scene to film, like a scene where it just worked when you were filming it, and you're like, this, this film might work because this scene works so well? I mean, I think the scene where people on set were laughing the most was when we were shooting inside the SWAT truck. And it was just this giant, ridiculous thing that, you know, they're going after these women with coupons and just something about Paul in that SWAT helmet (laughs) and plaid shirt inside that environment. And uh, I think we're all just uh, like they were riffing a lot in there. And, you know, there's a lot that wasn't in the movie that was just very funny that night. Um, I yeah. remember that being something that like the whole crew was just kind of dying laughing at the it. stuff Paul and Vince were going back and forth with. Yeah, I think like that was definitely a great scene for us to know, like, OK, we have something that we feel like confident when we get into the edit. And then like even when. You see all the Lamborghinis and all the stuff like from the luxury high end. We were like, okay, this looks like a much bigger movie than what we're making. We felt like the scope was there. Uh The stuff in the airplane hangar was 
cost more than our movie. So we <laughs> the actual value of yeah. it. Yeah, like that yeah. RV that was there was like $2 million. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, the I, it really was like a love story between the guy, well, both sets of characters really, but definitely the guys. That was a really sweet and touching dynamic. We realized yeah. that, you know, in writing, like the B story is often the love story and we realized like, oh, the love story is Paul and Vince. And <laughs> How do we take that from them, you know, being kind of oil and water at the beginning to genuinely friends at the end? Yeah. In a typical structure, you'd want like, here are the good people and here are the bad people. And no, the bad people have to go after the good people or however you want to like phrase it. And I think for us, we really, because we come from journalism documentary, we just didn't want to judge our characters. We felt like everybody, everybody, everybody in this room, we make good choices and bad choices but what happens if you take these pairings and you go on the journey, can you root for them both and then have this complex ethical and moral decision when you're in the interrogation room and you're wondering like, oh, do I really want these women to go to prison or do we really want these guys to catch them? And we loved playing around with that dynamic and letting the audience be able to choose and decide like what they felt like should happen. And also in buddy comedies, it's usually like two thirds of the way through they have to get in an argument and kind of yeah. storm off and mope around for five minutes and then come back together and right. then <laughs> yeah. conquer. And we're like, how can we, you know, not do that? How can we have them be like loyal friends the whole way through, but have this external thing bearing down on them? That was a big conversation we had a, for a, a long time in the writing process because it was really important to us. I Aaron and I are best friends, but also like we have a lot of friends. I have a lot of girlfriends that I've been friends for years and they go through tremendous obstacles in their lives. I've gone through tremendous obstacles in our in my life. And usually Your friends I'm, lift you up. My friends, yeah. If you are, if you have a good friend, they're lifting you up and helping you try to figure out how to get through that obstacle. They are not usually the obstacle. Yeah. And we really wanted to make this about what a true beautiful friendship could be like. And then with the B storyline, yeah, how how can we make their ending satisfying? As how can they end up as friends? Exactly. Right. And then the plot basically is the twists that you, the obstacles, the big, that the big act moments. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I didn't, you don't miss it. You don't miss that like argument between friends. And I've often felt that, especially about female buddy comedies. Like I feel the same. It's not usually those, they're not your I feel like our uh, antagonists are usually within a bit more than <laughs> without. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was a nice drawing of that. Yeah. The first part of it is very much like the scam is the true part. Like, and that's why we say it's inspired, not based on a true story, because that was sort of the launching pad. We created the characters entirely within that scam, but you know, the real women in Phoenix, Arizona, did figure out a way to get manufacturer coupons, sold them on a website called Savvy Shopper Site, something <laughs> a little different, um, and made millions of dollars. And a SWAT team eventually busted in on them. And they had guns and sports cars and a giant RV and a speedboat and all of this stuff. And and then they got slaps on the wrist because the corporations didn't want their names on the news and everything. So you know, one of them got like 18 months in prison and one of them got probation. And a so a lot example. of those things were well, true. And it's a good example of, in this case, it actually pays to be undervalued when you're trying to get sentenced because it was about coupons. And I think it was like 
the judge knew that if they were going to give these women 40 years to life, over that coupons, would, over coupons, that probably wouldn't go over well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So that they actually, um, so the detect, detective had a list of all the companies. That were victims. And then we actually went to those companies because it's been, this case took place in 2012. And we asked them, can we actually use this? It's, we're making a movie. It's Kristen Bell and all of these actors in it. And they were just excited about the idea that their products would be able to be in the movie. So time heals. Yeah. And yeah, I think corporations like good press and hate bad press and thought maybe this movie would be good press. And in the second question, in terms of like keeping it grounded in journalism and, and kind of going and taking creative liberties, all of our other scripts are like 99.9% accurate to what usually happens in this Much more life. based on true stories and very mm-hmm. close to the truth. This mm-hmm. one just felt like when we had that yeah. jumping off point. Yeah. And I think like, you know, typically when we do research for a, a movie that we want to write and then direct... You know, we spend like a year and a half just doing heavy lifting in the research. And in when we heard about this project, it was like end of 2017. And at the end of 2017, my dad died. And Aaron's mom had passed away a few years beforehand. And we just kind of felt like, you know, the time that we're grieving, like, do we really want to dive into something really heavy and serious? Or could we find something that maybe was a little lighter and also we could maybe talk more about what well, we our personal journey of what we were struggling with in Hollywood but use it under a different lens like you know we felt like undervalued and discounted very much like a coupon and we really loved that idea of what happens when you're trying to find your worth in a place like Hollywood and we purposefully after Crook County fell apart for the third time we purposefully were like okay we're going to write something that's a little more commercial a comedy, a lower budget, like how can we get something made um, so that we can change our value? Mm-hmm. So a lot of it was conscious decisions. And, you know, uh, when STX sold domestic streaming rights to Paramount Plus for this huge amount of money, like two months ago or something, we we had a moment where we were kind of like, okay, mission accomplished. Like it was three years doing that, but we did change our value in the industry by making the movie. And so, and do you still want Crook County to be your next project now, or how are you feeling about that? And does it seem like doors will open easier? Uh, we hope so, yeah. <laughs> but, I, um, so. I mean, there's yeah. that. We also have another movie. It's untitled right now, but it's about, it's a, based on a true story of this investigative journalist in Boston who spent four years uh, investigating and in exposing the Sackler family that owns Purdue Pharma, makers of OxyContin. Very much sort of like a spotlight kind of perspective. You know, it's about the opioid crisis, but it's really told through this reporter's journey of uncovering all of it. And a big reason why the Sacklers' names are so in the news now and they're kind of having their downfall is because of things that he got leaked from sources. And uh, so that's another, you know, not a comedy, another important story that one of those two uh, hopefully is our next movie. Um, And what advice would you have for directors who are 
struggling for financing? How do you know like when it's time to turn away from a movie you've been working on? And how do you know when it's time to keep pushing? Well, with Crick County, it was set up in um, finance three times and then fell apart three times. And each time, the only way we would try to be able to get it financed was by cutting the budget. And by cutting the budget, what they really mean is cutting the script. And the script, though, is the foundation for making a great movie. So the more you start cutting that script, the more you know it's going to be a worse movie. You can't start with a bad script and make a great movie. But if you start with a great script, you have the opportunity to make a great movie. And so there was just a point where we knew that we wouldn't be able to live with the version of the script that we had to cut it to. And Aaron said, you know, when you're driving in a car and you feel like it's going off the cliff, you know you need to start to jump out. And that was to us like when we had to start cutting the script. Well, like the third time it fell apart, it was partly like us walking away from it because we actually had financing, but what they were saying is like, we can't give you what we said we were going to give you and what you actually need to make the movie. We're going to give you much less. And we're just like, we can't make the movie the way we want to make it for that amount. And we, you can only make it once. Yeah. <laughs> like you can't get up and then go back three years later and be like, let's do it again. So we chose, we're just like, well, we can't make it for that amount of money. So we're not going to like, we're going to make something else and then come back to it. Yeah. Uh, and it was just, you know, a conscious decision of, we wrote something that was in uh, the exact movie we would want to go see in a theater. And at that point with our team saying, just do it for less, get it made, whatever. It's like, yeah, but now it, it'll be a movie we don't even want to see. So why, why are we going to do that? I think so. you have to just like not, there's a million compromises in any movie you have to make, but instinctually, you know, if you're a writer director in particular, that there are certain choices you will never be able to live with for the rest of your life if you see that movie out there and you just want to avoid as many regrets as possible. So that's kind of has always been our goal, which is how can we live with knowing that the movies that we're putting out there, we're proud of no matter how difficult and challenging and whatever choices we make for we're going to compromise on are the ones that we can live with. And we've built our whole lives so that we don't have to do things for money. Like we have no children we have no, yeah, we have smart. no debt. We yeah. rent all of yeah. this stuff because, you know, you hear, it's like, well, yeah, I did that movie because I had a mortgage or my kid was going to college. It's like, we, we've yeah. built our lives so that we don't have to do anything for money because we don't need a lot of money. Yeah. So, you know, when they're saying to do it, it's just like, we, no. Like, well, right. You don't have the one power over me that most yeah. people in town. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, and you guys have the fortitude to know you're going to do it eventually your way, not that you're at the mercy of the town, which is a hard thing to remember, I think, as directors sometimes. Yeah. yeah we're, we're okay saying no because we know what our journey is. Every, every director's journey is different. Our journey is going to be made by the choices and decisions we make, but we will never chase money and we never chase just the idea of a shiny object out there. It's really important to us to understand why Aaron and Gita need to tell that story. We do suffer a lot, yeah. but we, um, <laughs> well, we hang important. out with Buddhist monks now that yeah. taught us to embrace the suffering, yeah. and that's how you grow, so we're yeah. trying to do better. Yeah. Right. Probably our best friend in Hollywood is Allison Jones, who cast the movie and is cast like, 
every great comedy show or movie in the last like three decades. Um, Mm -hmm. And she's just very good at that, like finding people that actually feel real and don't feel like it's an actor playing a cashier or something. Yeah, we've had a relationship with Allison for over 10 years now, and we talk about casting with her all the time. And so when we were we were laughing because our last movie, Allison cast, was Beneath the Harvest Sky, which is a, a drama. And we were so excited that we could actually give her a comedy to cast finally because this is right in her wheelhouse. And but, she, yeah. she cast Beneath the Harvest Sky for free. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and... We, we didn't know her then we went to her with this little indie drama and we just like Gita cold called her office and sent the script and somehow she read it. Mm -hmm. And she was like, did you send this to me because of my ties to Maine? And we're like, (laughs) we didn't know you had any ties to Maine. And she, she actually, her sister's husband's family was from like this tiny town in Northern Maine where we were making the movie and Allison was like, I don't think you have a lot of money. I'll cast this for you for free. And actually flew to Van Buren, Maine, a population of 2,000 people, and did local casting herself. Like, yeah. she's just been, like, such a and supporter. she's a legend. Yeah. So hard to get. So that's amazing. That well, what's great with Allison is she doesn't send you a million names. Because you don't need a million. Like, when you're dealing with Allison, we talk creatively about what we're looking for and why that specific part we want, like the grocery store clerks. Like we wanted to feel real, but also like every grocery clerk that we've always asked for things in the line, uh, trying to find a product or something definitely has a unique personality about them. And we also wanted those store, store grocery workers to feel like they came from the documentary world. So she literally would send us at most like two or three people for each of those different roles after she like curated it so well and then we would know, okay, this is the best of what we're looking at. Let's figure out what we want. And then every once in a while you get lucky, like we're still looking for this FBI agent to play the scene opposite Paul. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're shooting a scene with Joel McHale and Kristen and Joel's like, what about Steven Root? And we're like, yeah, if you <laughs> can get Steven Root, yeah. that would be great. And, you know, him and Kristen shoot a little video and he texts it to Steven Root and suddenly he's up for playing that role and coming in for a day. And, you know, and then to see him and Paul together was just great. So you also get stuff like that where suddenly Steven Root's willing to be, you know, a one day role in the movie and it just elevates um, that scene. I think part of that process for some of those roles as well was just that collaboration that we talked about, like Kristen wasn't afraid of opening her Rolodex to be like, if there's someone to play the doctor or somebody that we needed. And she was like, well, let me just call this person and see if they're available. So it was really just like everybody rolling up their sleeves and just trying to find the best cast possible for us. Kim is friends with Nick Cassavetes and suddenly he's Yep. The leader of the militia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a that's a nice compliment to you guys though, because your cast doesn't open up their Rolodex unless they feel like they can trust their friends with you as directors and the project and Aww. so it's right, showed. Yeah. Aww, Everybody seemed to be having a good time. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. that makes a difference. Is there any last thing you wanna Oh, well, we hope add? that if you guys like the movie that you'll spread the word and um help get people to come see it. We're really proud of it. We made this movie literally knowing that we're in the height of the pandemic and we knew that by the time this movie would come out, we thought that we'd be at the end of the pandemic, but people would still be grieving in their own ways. Like we were grieving when we were writing the script and we just wanted to bring 
some joy and happiness to people's lives in their households or when they went to a theater to see it. And we were thinking it would be in theaters, but we're kind of fucking up the pandemic. So yeah. here we are. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, September 30th, it uh, also debuts on Paramount Plus and will live on Paramount Plus. So yeah. if you enjoy it, even telling your friends to watch it at the end of the month when it's on Paramount Plus. Be yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you all so much for coming out and seeing this. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another DGA QA. If you'd like to hear more, the director's cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.